Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, welcome to Rattlecast number 169, so glad you could join me. Um, today's guest is Nicole Caruso-Garcia, she'll be here in about 10 minutes, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this, we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share, subscribe, leave reviews on iTunes or Spotify or anything like that if you're watching after the fact or just listening. I mean, anything you can do to help spread poetry on the internet is much appreciated, and there's so many platforms, so many opportunities, so many possibilities for sharing it, so please do right now. Now, as always, we like to begin with the Poetry Spawn Poet of the Week, so we can talk about contemporary events through the lens of poetry. And we have a veteran of Poetry Spawn here this week with us. Uh, Dante Stefano is here. Hey, Dante, how you doing? Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me, and thanks for taking my poem. Yeah, so glad to. It's always a pleasure sharing your work. Um, and, and this poem was no exception. I mean, you, you, you're one of the poets who submits poems a lot, which is greatly appreciated. I really appreciate it. We've published like, I don't know, at least 10 maybe. I don't know how many we've published. Um, but this one was about the, the world population uh, surpassing 8 billion, which is definitely a milestone worth noting. Uh, do you want to mention or explain a little bit what inspired the poem and, and how it came to be? Yeah, I just, um, you know, read that headline, which... In some ways, uh, it it was strangely unassuming, you know. Like it's uh-huh. huge news. Um, it kind of uh, it kind of faded into the background of you know all of the other news in a lot of ways. Um, it has profound repercussions for climate change and for uh, you know for for a whole bunch of other stuff. But I I just started thinking about it, um, you know the immensity of 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 that 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 number and and then the poem the poem came from there so yeah and what's cool about the poem is it it takes a um, a positive spin on it for for the majority of the poem which is a really interesting way to go about it um how did you know i mean you know it's one of those topics we did get several poems about um and how did you decide to take it in that direction at first like how did you how did the poem start well, I just started, you know, with the, with the, you know, I knew I want, I, I usually start with titles, honestly. And, and I favor these kind of long expository, almost ridiculous James Wright-esque or Levi-esque, you know, titles. Um, so I, I wanted something that, you know, got in like some of the valences of, the terrifying and the ancient, the profound, like all of the, the planet, you know, and all of its grandeur. So I came up with the title first and then I was just, you know, doing what you do when you're writing a poem, like, you know, you're in that, you dwell in that kind of non-space and reach for images and hear a type of music and, and kind of riff that music into being. And a lot of my poems you know, a, a lot of contemporary poetry is built on an aphora. So, you know, that was the that is the vertebrae of this poem. Mm-hmm. So um, the music of that, re- those repetitions. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely is very clearly so. And um, it was just such a cool way to take it, too, because like, you know, like everybody has the same kind of thoughts when they talk about the population growing like it is. And, you know, I mean, the idea of like just too many, you know, fruit flies on the peach consuming it all until there's no food left that kind of thing is just immediately pops into your mind and um and and so taking it a different direction and saying having positive things thrown out before that twist at the end made it really work i thought um why don't you go ahead and read it if you don't mind sure 
As the world population surpasses 8 billion, I purposely misremember a line from Anne Carson Sappho and hear in its utterance the song of the humpback whale. More of us than ever before walk the earth at once. All over the globe, more men and women fall in and out of love. And open windows frame more rain-facing faces than ever before in the history of storms. There are more children learning the sad math of growing up than ever before. More dead goldfishes flush down toilets. More middle schoolers unlearning the bass, guitar, string by string. There are more old men eating canned peaches beneath olive trees. More family trees scrawled by red crayon in the script and meter of ancient seas. Strikingly beautiful gray-haired women bow over raised beds of roses with much more frequency than in any other era. There are more mothers and more kisses, more eyelashes fluttering mascara, butterflies, more desires, more hands both slapped and held, more kids praying beneath covers in the middle of the night. There's more tears by millions of leaders, much more despair and surprisingly much more stupid hope to cling to, to flip kick off the wall of more smudged pencil X's on love letters, more lipstick traces on coffee cups, more hips, thighs, breasts, sighs, biceps, collarbones, aches in the groin, in the knuckles, in the beat of breeze against branch, of throat against verb, more to fear, to love, to praise, to sing with, to thread into the horizon's pink hem, to pull from pine needle and leaf alike this hymn of the planet spinning into us. Yeah, beautiful poem by Dante Di Stefano. Uh, once again, that was, uh, as the world population surpasses 8 billion, I purposely misremember a line from Ann Carson Sappho and hear in its utterance the song of the humpback whale. Um, quite the title there too, Dante. Um, and let me ask you one more question before you go. Um, how, what do you got for like a manuscript coming up or anything? Because we've published so many of your poems. They're always great. Um, and I'd love to have you on as a full-time guest. Anything coming up in the pipeline? I have, uh, well... Rattle poems are in all of my collections. Uh-huh. My first collection um, was, uh, well, my most recent book was, uh, it's a three-in-one collection. So my manuscript in it is Lullaby with Incendiary Device. Mm-hmm. And it also features manuscripts by William Hayen, who's in his 80s now, and H.L. Uh, uh, Hicks, who's in his 60s. Uh-huh. So the book called Generations, Three Generations of um, that was out last June. And then um, in March, a, a book-length poem of mine um, called Midwhistle is coming out from University of Wisconsin Press. Excellent. So. Well, we'll definitely have you on the spring then when that book comes out. I love, yeah. love that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Dante. Always a pleasure. Great poems. Always love hearing from you. Uh, it's always fun. I hope I hear, hear you got the same voice thing going on as I do. <laughs> I hope we both recover soon. Thanks for everything, Tim. Thanks for supporting my poems and I'm looking forward to hearing Nicole's poetry soon so yeah yeah thanks so much take care Dante that was Dante DiStefano 
with uh, Sunday's poem, uh, which I won't read the title again, about the population surpassing 8 billion. Um, now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Nicole Caruso-Garcia. So uh, I'm going to put up some uh, little, little bumper screen and some splash music or other way around, and we will uh, get to Nicole in just a moment. And we're back. Thank you so much for your patience. As I said, uh, today's guest is Nicole Caruso-Garcia. Nicole's full-length debut collection of poetry is Oxblood, which is right here from Able Muse Press, one of my favorite presses. Um, really wonderful work they do just all around. Of course, you know I love formal poetry, though, so Able Muse focuses on that. Um, her writing appears in journals and anthologies such as Best New Poets 2021, Crab Orchard Review, Diagram, Light, Measure, Mazokumin, One Art, Pank Plume, Raintown Review, Three Times in Rattle, Twice Poets Respond, I believe. And uh, Rhino, Sonora Review, Spillway, Tupelo Quarterly, etc. You can find her work at, um, at NicoleCarusoGarcia.com. So check out her website if you would. And uh, here she is, Nicole Caruso Garcia. Hey, Nicole, how you doing? Good, real good. Thanks. Thank you so much, Tim, for having me. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. Been, uh, you were a great guest for um, Poetry Respond um, back in a year and a half ago, maybe a summer, a couple. Um, unfortunately, for talking about um, Kim Bridgeford, who is really close to you, um, and that poem commemorating her passing, um, which was very sudden and, and very unfortunate. Um, but um, but it was great to have you again. Um, thanks so much for being a guest. Thanks for having me. Um, um, do you want to start? Gonna... Yeah, do you want to start with a poem? Sure, I will begin with a poem called Appraisal. Appraisal. Once raped, you wear it daily. Learn to see the cut, the color, clarity, and carrot. Each time you try to square asymmetry, it cleaves reveals another jagged facet. Fool, you think it fits inside one poem. No, map with calipers and microscope, your story since you came to wear that stone, flawed and heart-shaped, bluer than the hope. Since you must wear it, hone it with precision. Leave your wrists unslit, the blood unbled, to cut and polish sin, to scintillation. Woman, rise up from the rhinestone dead. Yet what can cut a diamond? Nothing can, except the hardest substance known to man. And that was Appraisal, one of the early poems from Oxblood, Nicole Crusoe-Garcia's book, uh, which just came out not too long ago from Able Muse Press. And that's a great poem to start with because it, it sets up with the, with the subject matter, which is, um, it, it's a very um, raw, emotionally powerful book, given what the topic is about. Um, how, how did the book come to be? Did you, did you know you wanted to write about this topic? And, and what made it feel like, um, like it, was, it was safe to do so? Because it's, it's such a tough topic to write about. Um, well, the book is, it's an autobiographical book. So what I didn't, it wasn't that I knew I was writing a book. Mm -hmm. Um, I was initially just writing individual poems and eventually I had enough of them where Kim Richard said, well, you know, of course you have a book. And I thought, wait, what? I, 
I, it, it didn't really occur to me that I was going to be putting them in a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess initially it didn't always feel safe to do so to write yeah. about it, but, mm-hmm. and it was hard in the beginning when I was using free, mainly free verse. And so that, but then when I got into formalism, having that structure, having that fence and, um, you know, as other, as some other poets have put it as like a safe place a box, a vessel to hold the dangerous or difficult subject matter made all the difference mm. in the world. I mean, I've heard poets such as uh, Marilyn Nelson or Rena and P.S. Bayat say, you know, you have to, for, for a very prickly subject, you want that security of, of a form. And form was really liberating for me. Um, I, I had the subject matter and it was kind of like in the beginning if suddenly you have access to all this material like like a a crane just dropped all this raw material and some of it you can't even identify what it is yet like is it wood is it beams is it girders and it's like you only have the tools to build a bird birdhouse but you might have materials to build the suspension bridge (laughs) but you have to learn how to build, you have to figure out what on earth you're building and how to build it. And for a long time, it was like that. Like I had things that I could only really say in a poem, but I had, but I was much younger and I had to develop the skills to mm-hmm. write poems. Well, that is such a great metaphor. And, and that's why it's always fun to talk to poets because we, we talk in metaphor a lot and, and having a crane dump building material on top of us is, uh, <laughs> it, it, that's gonna, that's gonna stick with it for a while. Um, <laughs> So that that's really cool. So so how though? Because I you know, given that your first book is very formal, I assumed you were always drawn to formal poetry. So um so so was it um, so what was the transition like? What was your introduction to um to, to formal poetry? Well, when I was um, in college, I took Cambridge for its poetry workshop, and you know she exposed us to a variety of kinds of poems. So we learned what sonnets were, what iambic pentameter was, but you know, being a young person who wasn't really writing a lot of poetry up to that point, I thought, well, gosh, that sounds difficult. Like, why would you try to, why would you try to make yourself write in a meter if you could just write free verse? Um, but then I found that a lot of the free verse poems I was writing weren't good, you know, by my standards or anyone else's. And um, I started, I guess, somehow reading more formalism or even just getting into writing um, syllabic poems and let's say, you know, all lines of seven or all lines of nine. And then, uh, I think Kim started encouraging me a little, she's like, Oh, you're turning into like quite the little metrical woman. And I'm like, what I am, <laughs> but, but she was such a great mentor and influence that I knew she never steered me wrong. So if she, if she said, Oh, it looks like you're heading this direction. I thought, okay, well I'm in that, I'm going in that direction now if you said so. Um, and then I just, I started, finding somehow it clicked, finding my footing, like liking puzzles, liking games. Um, and I, I need that fence. It, it, I think for me, in a lot of ways, writing free verse can be kind of scary, scary still. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I write some some of it, but most of the things in this book are, are formal. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear another poem. Um, what do you want to read next? Oh, okay. I'd love to. Um, the next poem is actually for my gynecologist. It's dedicated to her, Dr. Leslie Goldstone Orley. And it is called, Have You Ever Been a Victim of Violence? 11 Reasons Why I Don't Check Yes. 
because the box, once X'd, can't be undone. Because the check the box is like a sadder version of I voted. Because I'll disappoint my angel of a gynecologist. She'll ask me when and see I've kept the truth from her for years. Because, damn it, I resent the box just waiting there to ambush me again. Because I bristle at the label victim and survivor can't win, both dice are loaded. Because the waiting room is Starbucks busy. Because the box is no confessional. Because there is no exorcist on staff. Because don't ask me to concede a thing when it's already such a feet in stirrups flashlight on my cervix kind of day. Because of women wearing crowns of thorns far thornier than mine. Because what grit I've got, I ration. And that was, have you ever been a victim of violence? 11 reasons why I don't check yes. Um, from Nicole Caruso-Garcia's book, Oxblood. Um, yeah, just another powerful poem. As, as the poems in this book all are, uh, moving through that experience and then, and then growing um, after that experience and coming to terms with it. Um, how, how did you decide how to organize the book? Because it's interesting, most of the guests come in and they do sort of an order through the book. And you went from an early poem to a later poem, as you're reading here. Um, how did you decide? Because there is a sort of a, there's an interesting thing, because you have to, um, you know, you have to get the subject matter out front so we know what you're talking about in certain poems that, that sort of reference mm-hmm. it more lightly. Um, and then, and then, but you don't want to like dwell on the same issue, you know, and, and so it moves through different experiences moving forward too. So how did you figure out how to put the book together in a way that would work as like a narrative arc? Because it is a book that very much tells a story. Well, thank you for that question. Um, it, well, the, the first poem I read appraisal, even though it's the second poem in the book and it's not the title poem, Oxblood, I feel it's kind of like, um, an unofficial or auxiliary title poem. Uh, so that's a main reason why I, I began like my set list with that. I was thinking of how to, how would I put these poems kind of in chronological order, but, but that was tricky too, because sometimes it's like my older self looking back. So I tried, I tried to maybe start with poems that kind of gave more of like a broad overview. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like a prologue would be in, in a Shakespearean play. And then, and then move into um, sections. So like there, there's a section that that's, you know, like more recent, more of some love poems, um, and then the last poem has its own section, what the angel saw is its own section, which that poem is a little bit of a long poem, but it, it kind of ties back to a lot of the motifs in the whole book. So the, the penultimate poem um, at the field's edge is kind of like the ending of the book. And then the other poem kind of just looks back. But Kim did advise me a little bit on how to arrange the book. You know, mm-hmm. you want the ending of one poem to kind of, flow into the the next so what i did was i took the titles of the poems and the first and last lines of them and i typed them all up 
and then I cut them into strips and I laid them all out on my dining room table so I could see how the beginnings of certain poems matched up with the ends of other ones. And then I just kind of made columns of what I thought the chapters would be. And then there was a little bit of reconfiguring. And then once um, Able Muse accepted it, there was just maybe a little bit of switcheroo of some poems, but it was very hard to organize the book, I think. But hopefully it comes across as a seamless narrative now. Mm -hmm. But the other tip that Kim gave me was, if you have poems that are a little more odd or experimental in terms of their form, she goes, I would group kind of all the, the oddball forms together. And so they ended up being one of the later chapters. But I think that as the as I became more comfortable with the subject matter and the, the forms became a little more unusual than those poems kind of clustered together anyway, like mm-hmm. the poem extension where I have a lot of the lines with a uh, crossed out or, you know, the concrete poem shaped like a cross. So those that the ones that, that loosened up a little, maybe they're like their own. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great suggestion. I know a lot of people, you know, struggle with putting manuscripts together, especially with the uh, Rattle Chapbook Prize deadline coming up. Everyone's trying to think about how to organize the, the smaller chapbooks, too. Um, that's a great yeah. suggestion with the, the, the first and last lines. I love that. That's a really cool <laughs> idea. Um, the other thing I want to ask about the book in general, too, is, is how you came upon the title. How, how are you sure Oxblood was the title? Because one of the things that was interesting is when you submitted... Um, a poem, um, I think it was Warning Signs. Maybe it was yeah. that, or maybe it was a different poem from Poetry Respond. I'm not sure. But you mentioned um, that it was going to be the it was the last poem in Oxblood. And I thought at the time that the book was like oh. out and like ready to go because you were so confident in the title, which usually like people are like, well, in my manuscript, tentatively titled Oxblood. But you were like in Oxblood, like you knew that that was going to be the title. I knew the title. Yeah. Well, Warning Sign was the last, po- one of the last poems I wrote for the manuscript, but it, it is not sequentially the last poem mm-hmm. in the manuscript. Um, I was tossing around some names, but Oxblood is the one that it, it felt the closest it felt like a fit um because the title poem does have to do with the oxblood colored boots and so many of the motifs in that poem ripple through the book um the coloring book of the saints is another title i had thought of that's the title of one of the other poems but i thought if someone's not paying attention on amazon and they buy this they're going to be really disappointed that it's not it's very much not a coloring book for their child <laughs> mm-hmm. um so um, but Oxblood, you know, in terms of thinking of, um, you know, blood and stains and, um, you know, the book also deals with suicidal ideation. So things like that, um, religious motifs, blood of Christ, and also like stubbornness in general, oxbloodedness, um, that, that, uh, and I ended up gravitating, mm-hmm. gravitating toward it, um, you know, sometimes it's just a gut. It's just a yeah. gut thing. Oh, and also, I tested it out on people. I would say when they would say, "What's the title of your manuscript?" I would tell them, and I would see what the reaction mm-hmm. was, as opposed to some other title. And this was the one everyone seemed to be interested. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very little market vivid, research you know? there. Yeah, it's it's hard to find like a one word, you know, strong word mm-hmm. thing that that evokes so much and isn't, you know, like if it was just blood, it wouldn't work or something. It has to be. You know, oxblood is so distinct and yet unique, mm. and, um, and 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 you know, it just stands so strongly. It's a great title, so it's a very memorable. Oh, I mean, really, like you, that email you sent where you're you're just mentioning it. 
Um, I've been asking, like, hey, when's it going to come out? When's it going to come out for years? Because um, so I'm so glad it finally did. Because that, that, that title and that, that is just so, um, so memorable. It's such a strong title. Um, let, let's hear another, uh, another poem. Okay. Okay, so the third poem is called Ghost Ship. At a distance, candles guttering can look like party lights, the way a ghost ship might seem from shore. It may have seemed I was carousing. It may have hurt you seeing my illuminated decks, my painted flags livened by wind. Despair is so immaculate a plague. A healthy vessel still will float, although you pillaged all the spirit from its hold. A ship like that may run aground or wreck against the cliffs. Adrift between the quick and the dead, it is not sorry, does not love or hate. It lists. And that was Ghost Ship. Um, so all the poems in this book, I mean, speaking of, of vivid imagery, um, you know, vivid imagery is like a sort of a central note in your, in this book, I would say like, just so like ghost ship is such a, is such a strong image. And the whole poem is written around that. Um, how does your, what is your writing process like? How does a poem like ghost ship come to be? Like, where did you, where did you find that metaphor? Was it in the process of writing or, or did the inspiration for that as a metaphor come first? And then you wrote the poem oh. to match it? I think I, I think I was imagining, you know, I was thinking back to the past, imagining like, how does it feel to be like walking around, you know, a college campus and be this kind of um, zombified kind of dead inside walking dead kind of being and how, how other people perceiving you are not, there's the difference between appearance and reality. And, um, and it, I, the image came to me of a, like a ghost ship off the coast of something. And like, it looks like, oh, here's a ship that's going to come and dock and how the wind can make it look alive when it isn't. And how that is a way that a person can feel. Um, and I think also the part of the original inspiration for the, for the poem was like the it may have hurt you part. Because in a book like this, it's easy to focus on like, um, the speaker of many of the poems being the hurt one. Mm. And so this kind of flips it around a little um, like, oh, the speaker could be hurtful too, potentially, but but not apologetic. Yeah. <laughs> but hurtful, unintentionally, maybe, but not apologetic. Um, but I do, I think, I used to think I was very um, like auditory and not so visual, but for poems, I do think that sometimes I hone in on an image and each poem when I'm drafting it seems almost like a movie set or part of a movie set that when I'm drafting it, it's like in my mind, I'm inhabiting that set and you know, kind of like walking around in it, exploring, even if it's dark and I can only see a little, a little bit. Um, well, my writing process is kind of a mess. I mean, I'm typically a very organized, neat person. And that's the irony is that it looks like I'm a serial killer if you look at my notes, even if they're typed to my computer or in like 
they don't even follow the lines on the paper. The paper could have lines, but my writing completely disregards any of that. It's just, it's, it's like tangled yarn. It's a mess. Um, but I usually stick, I, it's something's usually inspired by like a line, um, an image, something that is nagging at me. Like, for example, when the, there's a, a poem in the book called Blood Villanelle and starts with the line, I wanted there to be a lot of blood. Um, that's a line that came to me while I was pulling into my garage one day, listening to NPR. There was an article about um, paracetamol, which is like acetaminophen, and they were talking about um, having to pop them all out of the little foil pouch just once, one at a time. Um, and that was like a deterrent for people like downing a whole bottle of them. And that line just popped into my head and I thought, oh, dang, now I got to write a poem. Now I got to write a poem with this yeah. line it won't leave me alone. Yeah, well, the the Gosha poem is, in particular is um, just such a striking image because that I don't think the poems we're going to read include this, but the it was at college where this happened, and and so you were on campus, and and the rapist was still on campus too. He was sort of given, yeah. you know, like <laughs> yeah. he wasn't allowed to go into you know buildings where he didn't have a class, but um, but was still there. So passing each other, I mean. Um, what was it like? Because that was it was a while ago that this happened, right? So, uh, what was it like going yeah, back I've, to to these memories? Was it was it more was it hard or was it more healing to go back and and mine and and sort of excavate the the stuff that was that happened back then? Um, I I think it was just it was just so much a compulsion. <clears throat> it was just so necessary mm-hmm. um someone had recently asked me like is it cathartic but i think of catharsis as being more like you know this <laughs> emetic kind of vomiting up of stuff this is you're transmuting this is a like a transmutation and what is what i didn't expect um was that like when the book was finally published and you can hold it in your hand and you can read it out loud to people like that that reading and encanting that it's like a it breaks a spell and um it was it's just such a peaceful thing Mm. to have the book um someone had asked me oh isn't it hard to isn't it hard to read these poems isn't it hard to read them in front of people i said hard to live yes hard to write yes hard to perform them um i mean it's in the beginning it wasn't that easy to read them but you know to deliver a poem and try to help the reader have an experience with that. Um, it's not nearly as hard as living it. Um, I had 30% of my college education still unfinished at the time that this happened. So yeah, that, so that was a significant part of my education. Um, and some people might say, well, you know, why don't you just transfer somewhere else? Well, Kim Ridgeford was my professor uh, there and, you know, I didn't want to, she, she was fabulous and I didn't want to leave her. And also I was of the mind that like, I'm not the one who has to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this is my turf <laughs> just as much as anyone else's. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. but yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess the short answer would be yes. Like, you know, healing in a way, but it's, um, but it's more like things have transmuted and, and it makes me think of, you know, the, um, the psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who survived the concentration camps and wrote um, Man's Search for Meaning, among other things, and how he was saying, you cannot control 
necessarily everything that happens to you in life, but the freedom that you have is in your response to it. You can control your response to it. So, um, so this is basically my response. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I felt compelled to respond. <laughs> and yeah. so this is my response. Yeah, and there's always the thing about uh, putting something in a container so it doesn't have to, like, you don't have to carry it anymore. That's what somebody was, I can't remember who it was, was talking about that, though, about how, like, once you have it in a container, you can put it down and pick it up when you, you know, feel like you want to pick it up, but you don't have to carry it um, as yeah. much because it's got its own its, its own unit now. Um, or you fashion it in, into something else. Mm-hmm. And one reader said that um, the form in the book felt like this is this is a poet restoring order to a fractured life. And I thought, oh, wow. Like when I was doing it, did I know I was doing that? No, I just felt compelled to do it. And it's like I said, if someone dumps all this scrap metal or all these materials and you don't know what they are, they still belong to you and they're cluttering and they're there and you're not going to be able to just get rid of them, but you have to do something with them. Mm-hmm. It's up to you what you do. Um but yeah, to carry to carry something around, but carry it in a different in a different form. Mm-hmm. Um, and the form, I think, is important. The other day, I was saying to myself, "Why, like, why is it uncomfortable for me to, <laughs> even though even though they're they're lovely blurbs on the back of the book, why is it uncomfortable for me to read the blurbs? Mm-hmm. Why is it uncomfortable for me to read the blurb like in my own press release? And, you know, and as I have insomnia one night, I'm lying there thinking this, and I thought. Well, it's because they're not in a safe container. They're not in a poem. Mm-hmm. And also they're not my words. So is it that um, it's somehow, I don't say palatable, but it's somehow in a, in a different shape and form when it's in the form of a poem. And when I feel like I'm the one or my speakers in this book, some of them are fictional, like Snow White or Philomena or, or an angel. But is it, it's diff, somehow different. And I think that's a, it's an argument for form. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, let's hear another one. I think Dear Reader is next. Sure. And this one has an epigraph from the French essayist Roland Barthes, The Pleasure of the Text. It's not the most erotic portion of the body where the garment gapes, the intermittence of skin flashing between two articles of clothing, between two edges. It is this flash itself which seduces. Dear reader, you come to hear me come undone, the diction taught then loose from my chameleon tongue. You sometimes wonder if it's fact, the friction of my lover's stubble where I'm stung. You gape at what the gaping might expose What will my inky fingerprints betray? I lie sincerely. My words conceal, disclose, no more, no less than paint or bronze or clay. Yet what I thought was simply ink grows thick and hardens, forged like opalescent stone or bee-flecked amber, set in a mosaic I can't stop. In truth, I'm not just shown in disabile. However crude or sacred, soon all I've offered God to you lies naked. And that was Dear Reader. 
a sonnet from Oxblood by Nicole Caruso Garcia. Uh, that was such an interesting uh, comment about about poetry, about form itself being the container and being so important to to having the meaning contained like that. What do you think it is about form that does that? Like specifically, like why do you think form has so much more more power to do that than uh, than than free verse poetry? Um. I mean, I don't know about more power, but it just it's just different. Like people can even if they're not familiar with formal poetry, when they're in an audience, they can hear the rhyme, they can feel the rhythm, and is there some kind of safety or security in that? So I don't think it's just about the, you know, it's not just about the author, it's about the reader's comfort too. So using I don't want to say comfort, but to make it possible, to make it accessible. I feel like so many of these poems just, I mean, they wouldn't have been possible for me without the form. Um, And as children, we're we're given rhymes, we're given, and, and there's even been research about, let's say, people who have lost their ability to speak through um, like accidents or illness and the use of rhyme and rhythm with them that um, even if they had trouble speaking just an ordinary prose sentence, they were gradually able to speak in rhythm and rhyme and that helped them regain their language. So there's something to it, the power of uh, the, the incantation yeah, yeah, it's how we learn language, you know, it's how we acquire it as kids and and how even the human race is a is a species, um, you know, over many many years the the yohi ho hypothesis and all that stuff. It's the music of of language that that carries through culture until we had other means of it. So it's such an important thing that we grew and evolved with. Um, if anybody has any questions for uh, Nicole, please leave them in the chat windows on Facebook or YouTube. I'm watching both and we'll pass anything along. Um, one of the things I noticed in your bio, Nicole, is that you spent time um, in the corporate world before going back and getting a green English and, and be teaching English in high school. Um, so what was it that you did and, and what, like, what led you to leaving that, that life in the corporate world and becoming a poet? Well, I mean, when I was in college, I was an English major, a double major in English and religious studies. And I thought, well, maybe I want to teach. But I was kind of, even though I, I ended up graduating fine, I was... I was just glad to be out of school at that point and, um, you know, and a little, maybe in a little bit of a tailspin there. So I just thought, okay, well, I need a job. And I ended up getting a job in, in sales, uh, at a company that manufactured dental alloys. So like when, when patients need crowns and bridges and they need caps, our company supplied that stuff. So I, my customers were dental laboratories. After that, I worked at Translux. So they're a company that makes stock tickers, time and temperature signs, scoreboards. Hmm. So for example, like San Diego Padres were a customer of mine. We would maintain their scoreboards. And then I worked for a company that made um, relational databases for architecture, engineering, and construction industry. And then when 9-11 happened, I, I kind of did a life reevaluation and I said, well, you know, it's it's not that I'm afraid of dying tragically in an accident. It's that I don't want to die without having pursued something that I was interested in doing. And then I decided to go back to school, get my master's. And I taught for 15 years in a public school uh, in the English department at Trumbull High. Um, 
But after 15 years there, I felt like um, it was like that wasn't my path anymore. And I wanted to finish my manuscript and send that out. And, and so I wanted to pursue um, poetry a little more intensely. And and so yeah so i had so i had a, a corporate a little you know corporate background there and and it's like i did enjoy being in, in sales i i really did um but then i i wanted to take another path too so mm -hmm. yeah and and what was it because i've talked to a lot of teachers on here especially you know high school teachers and and there's just a sense of um just complete burnout for the way teaching is going. Like, so I know so yeah. many people who went in and loved it originally. And then when all the standardized testing came in and the different ways, like, um, we're raising our kids, frankly, um, it just got so hard to, to do what they used to love. I know so many people who loved it and then had to leave because they loved it because they couldn't love it anymore. Um, yeah. was, was that the case for you? Was it, was it something that changed there or was it just that, that you had the opportunity and, and wanted to focus on poetry? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, it's it's not just it's not just one answer. Um, there was a lot of what I was doing that I loved, but I think there's also a lot broken in the system. And as one person, you don't really have the power to change all of that. Mm -hmm. um, I I liked the teaching aspect. There's a lot that educators have to do that really doesn't it doesn't ever really have much to do with teaching so if i if i could actually teach like one of my favorite things was working with the students one-on-one -on -one about their essays and their poems like hearing what they had to say what they were struggling with what they're trying to do um those conversations were my favorite parts of the day <laughs> yeah yeah for sure um well let's hear some more poetry the next poem is one of the persona poems in the collection. It's called To the Undertaker. Undertaker, I have sought you. Hover close above. My overtaker, faith shaker, was the man I loved. Sew my useless jaw together. Drain my blood's scant volume. He moved as though my lips were stitched by all the days I loved him. Your devotion lasts two hours. Tend and wash my body. In merely minutes, he had made unholy. Holy Friday, fill me with your reeking fluid, harsh, but not unkind. Preserve my body with your proof. His petrified my mind. Pack my cavities with gauze, make pretty perjury. I thought I was a woman loved. I am an effigy. Paint my face so lifelike, they will marvel at my charms. Who's that makeup for? He asked. Gawkers now, and worms. Oh, gentlemen of more respect, lay coins upon my eyes. He made me lesser than a whore, 
staked claim between my thighs. I was his would-be wife, and still you dress me for the church, a gown of silken muslin for a carcass with no worth. That was To the Undertaker from Oxblood. Um, let's read the title poem, too. Do you want to do Oxblood now? Sure. And Oxblood has a little epigraph, um, which is actually just a paraphrased line from the poem. And the epigraph is, Why will you take by force what you may obtain by love? From a 1609 speech by Chief Powhatan, as recorded by John Smith. Oxblood. Go to Shepler's on North First in Tucson. Buy yourself a pair of cowboy boots. You're East Coast, so the sales clerk won't attempt to sell you Tony Lama or Lucchese. She'll steer you toward a discontinued pair of Sanders, plain, just under 90 bucks. And when you hesitate, Cordovan? She'll gently pull the wadding from their throats, correcting you politely. These are goatskin, oxblood. Under other circumstances, brown or black would do, but it's a long walk back along a ledge of grief. These boots must testify. A diamond ring is neither branding iron nor fencing wire. Don't ask why take by force what you can have by love. Despite your Spartan fist, there's no redress. So take the oxblood, thank the lady for her help, and yes, you'd like to wear them. For eight years, wear them. Staggered in between your goth phase, swing phase, punk, bohemian. They'll frisk you at the Guns N' Roses show, so tuck a can of mace inside the shaft. When trouble parks his El Dorado just to follow you on foot, remember this. Each arch contains an 18-gauge steel shank. And when the mud-scab soles are wearing thin, well, get them fixed. For 20 bucks, they'll look as good as Lazarus. For eight more years, wear them. In rain, and snow, and summer heat. Though late most afternoons, the light forgives. Spills violet blue. One day, you must admit, though the leather still looks plummy, Half the outsole stitching has dissolved like cat gut, and the vamp is pulling free, beyond repair, yet beautiful with brokenness. Retire them beneath the guest room bed, and in that kneeling, listen at the window to the swelling requiem of crickets. If you have done all this, then stand. At first, you'll feel no different. Yet the sun will strike within a copper sky, that barefoot hour. All your scorpions have turned to sand. And that was the title poem from Oxblood, Nicole Caruso Garcia's uh, new book from Able Muse Press. Um, <clears throat> And it's very clear that you um, you perform your poems 
Nicole, um, and, and in a way that um, it, it's interesting because it's not it doesn't use that poet voice. Um, it, it lets the poets, the, the the poems and the lines speak like you have, you know, allow for pauses, but there's a natural feeling to it. And there's also a bit of a drama to it. So how did you, how much do you think about the way you're going to perform a poem? Because it is interesting. Uh, I do, I do think about it. Um, and I, I read them to myself and see what, what sounds comfortable or natural to me or what words I get like tongue tied up tied and trip up on and maybe need to revise. Um, I don't really think of it as reading a poem, like even though we call things poetry readings, I don't, like I'm not reading or reciting, but I don't think of it so much as, um, it is kind of more for me a performance than a reading, but ultimately what I'm trying to do is just deliver like this isn't, I try to have it be an experience for the audience or the, the listener, whether they're just listening or watching or both. Um, I want to deliver something and there's something for them to receive and something I'm giving to them. And I just want it to be um, an experience for them. And so if by performing it, um, that comes across more clearly than just kind of reading it, then, I guess I would call it performing. It. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and what what's the reaction been um, to the book? You need to, uh, as Dick Westheimer says in the comments here, it's no stunning. one has pelted me with tomatoes yet. <laughs> no. But um, but Dick says uh, it's stunning that to think that these poems lived in Nicole for all those years she was working in corporate America. <laughs> so as as a non po you know, you have you know co- corporate friends, I assume, and then you have like school friends. Um, friends, yeah. yeah, yeah. What is the your know, reaction been to the book from from your friends and people you know? Did they know you were a poet all these years in in corporate America and in teaching uh, teaching high school? Um, in in high school, yes. The 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 uh, English department and also a lot of the other faculty they they knew that I was um, a poet. Um, and every everyone has been very very kind. Uh, they've been they've been positive and. That book hasn't really been out that long yet, so um, I'm sure I'll end up having more conversations with people. But um, I, I've I feel like I've learned things from people's reaction, learned things about myself, and maybe why I wrote the book that I didn't occur to me before. Um, people have shared some of their own stories that um, you know th- things that made me cry and just meant a ton to me when they shared them, and. Um, Yes, my, my English department definitely knew that I was writing. And I would also write um, raps that I would perform for the students and sometimes for the faculty. So like it, it could be about Christmas, Hanukkah, Thanksgiving, uh, plagiarism. And I would be, capital G was my rapper alias. And I would perform these things. And it was all kind of, you know, just in good fun, not taking ourselves too, too seriously. So, yeah, so they knew that I that I would write some kind of like haha, silly, funny things. And then that I would also have um, poems that would get me sent to my guidance counselor if I had one. <laughs> so, um, but everyone's been uh, very supportive, um, very encouraging, um, especially the things Farmage from Lahai. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, um, friends locally who aren't educators, I mean, they would know that I would, uh, that I would write. And, you know, sometimes they come, they would come here. Yeah. Um, so about your, um, the writing process. So uh, it was a little late to, to add on to the last question, but, but Dick again asks, um, do you read performatively when you're writing, revising 
um, or in a more contained voice. And that's something that is something I was wondering about is, is your reading voice the same as the voice of composition as you're creating the poem? Like, do you have a voice in your head as you're writing it out? And then just also in general, like, how does a poem come to be in the shape that it is or in the voice that it is? Like, like when does it, does it find the, the way that it's going to be, the container that's going to be, the container of voice where it's going to be housed for the rest of its life? How does that happen? It kind of depends. I mean, to, to address the first part of the question, like, do I compose in that voice? I think I do think about how would this, how would this be received by an audience? Um, so when I'm composing, I don't, I would, I would say that it's, um, it's probably more dramatic. Like when I'm performing, like when you just heard me read, like that's more dramatic. I'm not that, that, performer's voice is not necessarily always in my head but in terms of deciding what form a poem is going to take I might have a, a couple lines a title sometimes it's the first line or the last line that comes to me and then it kind of depends what other lines sometimes I'll naturally hear something like a rhyme oh this this line might rhyme with the first line that sounds good but if I if I hear a third rhyme well then maybe this is going to be terzarima or maybe this will be written in triplets um, I've, I've thought poems were going to be sonnets and then they ended up being twice as long and maybe they just ended up being some other kind of rhyming ambics, um, pattern or terzarima, but kind of depends on what I hear. I never set out and say like, I'm going to write a villanelle now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like that. And, and then how do you approach, um, um, rhyming? Cause you know, most poets, you know, the majority of poets, the majority of submissions we receive don't rhyme. And one thing that stands out really strongly in your work is your use of slant rhyme and like sort of really distant rhymes. Um, I think um, the, what was the second to last poem I read? That had a whole bunch of them um, in uh, To the Undertaker. Um, there were a whole oh. bunch of um, slant rhymes, maybe like um, like Perjury and Effigy or like mm -hmm. um, Charms Becomes Worms, Friday and Body, which is pretty far away. Um, how is it, how is it, do you have any like sort of philosophy about how to approach rhyme? So it's not, not so regular that it becomes boring and repetitive and, and sort of obvious, yeah. which is the problem. Like when people say, I don't like rhyming poems, which some of Anti -rhyme. our- Anti-rhyme. Yeah. It, it, it's really what they mean usually is just those true strong rhymes mm -hmm. on end stops. That but, are, but you could have a poem with true strong rhymes uh -huh. in it, but maybe the poem would have to have more enjambment of lines so that you're not end stopping and hitting people over the head with like a ball peen hammer. Um, I mean, you don't get any more poetry points for doing a, a, a true rhyme, perfect rhyme, as opposed to slant rhyme. So much of what makes rap exciting and clever is the slant rhyme. Mm -hmm. So why not? I mean, slant rhyme opens up so many more possibilities for rhyme. So I like to sometimes do stealth rhyme, like I'll put a rhyme rhymes in a poem, but if you do enough enjambment and if some of them are slant, someone could get to the end of it, not even realize that it rhymes until the bring of a rhyming couplet at the end. Um, so I just, I try not to force rhymes. And I also had read a good tip in, um, I believe it was in Annie Finch's book, A Poet's Craft. She said, when you're rhyming, if you have kind of a really quirky word as a rhyme, um, have it be the second word. Like hmm. it's better to rhyme Timbuktu and then with you than the other way around. Or it seems like you're really reaching for the rhyme. 
And that's that's a great book. Her book is so useful. Um, yeah, but, I mean, rhyme, yeah. rhyme is enjoyable. <laughs> what do you say? It can be. Does it come to you uh, intuitively, or do you, like, think about it consciously, about, like, oh, I, I've been, like, this This can't have such a strong rhyme in this spot because there's not enough in jam. And is that something that you would actually think about, or do you just hear it and run with it how your ear wants to, to play the poem like a song? I mean, so, sometimes I hear rhymes, and so, sometimes I look at rhyme zone and think, oh, well, here's a really interesting word. Like, how how would I have to stretch this narrative or how would I have to stretch this, this poem to fit in that word, which might be interesting and give more texture to the poem, but still coincides with the theme. So, I mean, I'm not above using rhyme zone, rhyming dictionaries. Like there's no shame in this game. I just like go to rhyme zone. No problem. Just sometimes the rhymes will, will come to me or I'll just hear a bunch of where like, okay, here or maybe some end words but none of it's easy. I mean, I, I struggle, I struggle to write uh, poems uh, that, that I, you know, to, to make them clear. Um, some people are prodigies and perhaps, and they're like, oh, I just wrote like, you know, I, I've written 20 books in my life or whatever. Okay, great. But well, I've got this one. So, <laughs> well, I know I have almost an, an entire other book waiting, but I'm still working on it. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, it's, there's nothing about it that's like magical or easy. It's just, you know, I read a lot of books on craft. I try to take the tips that other uh, writers are willing to offer and say, mm-hmm. and, and that, that makes it a lot easier. <laughs> well, uh, we have, I think, two more poems from Oxbow. Let's read the two, and then we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what's coming up next, too. Okay, sure. Um, all right, so the next poem, I Never Fall in Love With You, is the title, and it's for my husband. I never fell in love with you. To fall in love implies a lack of choice, as if I were cartoonish, maladroit, and love an open manhole to avoid. To fall suggests a kind of loftiness that I began in some exalted place and not the airy of my loneliness. To fall like rain or tears or mercury, a pawn of Cupid or of gravity. No, with my grappling hook, I climbed precisely. To fall kerplunk is stumbling imperfection. No, I would brave the hot tar of rejection to wear the ermine cloak of your affection. I built a trebuchet and aimed to sail beyond your moat over your castle wall. I launched, I soared in love. I did not fall. I never fell in love with you from Oxblood. And then uh, let's do the Snow White poem too. Okay. So here's one of the persona poems in the book. It's called Snow White's Plea to the Huntsman. Asleep, I shiver in a silken gown and wait for you to find me in the dark. Don't let me waken shackled to a crown, too drowsy to resist that royal mark. You saved me once and fooled the wicked queen who craved a lung and liver fricassee. 
yet served a hoax, she licked her fingers clean. By sparing me your sword, you captured me. Let moonlight vigil lead you to my lips and prove your kiss will break this spell's embrace. The prickly arrows of your cheek eclipse affection from the, smooth the smoothest princely face. Such knaves can plunder tassels, trinkets, art, but only you can breach my fortressed heart. Yeah, two beautiful love poems to end on. That was Snow White's plea to the huntsman. Again, they're poems from Oxblood that we're reading here with Nicole Caruso Garcia. Um, and then you do have, you mentioned you have a, a full manuscript that you're working on right now. Um, what is that about and how is that different from Oxblood? Well, it's um, it's definitely going to be funnier. <laughs> yeah. Oxblood is not a laugh riot, um, but um, it's, there, there will be, I say some, I don't want to say overlap, but the second, the second book will be, it's, it's yet untitled, but it'll be more irreverent. Um, it's going to be a little more eclectic, but it'll be unified by kind of the concept that comedy and tragedy are two sides of the same coin. So um, there will be some levity. So it's kind of where gravity meets lev levity. Um, there will be some poems that take aim at, people like politicians and pillow salesmen. And, um, but there will also be elegies and tributes. And um, I think more, more characters, maybe like family members, uh, pop culture personalities. Um, the, the similarity between the two books is that there will be some, I think some me too type poems in there. Like I do have a tribute to Dr. Christine Blasey Ford who, testified before the uh, the Senate committee um, that there will be um, more poems in form. So I know maybe like at least 15 different forms. Um, but I hope for there to be more oddities, um, more surprises and just definitely more humor. I mean, I like to make people laugh, but making people laugh was not really the goal of Oxblood. Although it's, I don't think it's a book entirely devoid of humor. It has maybe a little like little barbs, humorous barbs, maybe a little bit. Um, and I hope to have more love poems also in the second book. Um, but yeah, just, um, yeah, definitely, uh, it'll be irreverent, eclectic. I'm still kind of fit, trying to figure out like how I would order it, what the, what the sections will be. I have about, mm, I think maybe roughly 50 poems, maybe like 60 pages, but some of those poems, because they're humorous, they're short. Mm -hmm. It could be like a double dactyl, Shakespeare tailgater, um, some, some smaller things. Uh, some surreal poems. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the, the political, because in your note um, uh, for um, Warning Sign, you, you mentioned the idea of storytelling as activism. Which is a really interesting concept, which I think poets, you know, poets have picked it up a lot lately. Um, how do you how do you think of like what do you think a poem can do as far as activism goes? Because it's one of those things like, are we preaching to a choir? Are we shouting in a well? You know, um, <laughs> is, is, what do you think a, a poem can do? Well, um, recently I had I had been in a, a panel discussion with a poet B. Fulton Jenis of Barb Jenis, and she has her book um, Blinded Birds, and, and her book was talking a lot about, it. basically her chapbook focuses on 
um, alcoholism and addiction. And she said that she doesn't think that these are things that should just like be banished to dark corners. Mm -hmm. And so if there are topics that get banished to dark corners and if harm can come of that, then it's a positive thing to bring certain subjects out into the light, whether it's alcoholism, addiction, suicidal ideation, sexual assault, um, whatever the topic is, is there, is there a benefit to bringing things out into the light because then people don't feel stigmatized or feel like whatever, whatever choice they're going to make, whatever direction they're going to go in is suddenly like they can be more, not that they have to be publicly vocal about it, but does it open up a dialogue? Even if these are very personal, private dialogues people are having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, is there har- is there harm by stigmatizing things and really banishing them to dark corners? So I thought it was interesting how Barb was saying she doesn't really believe in banishing things to dark corners, and I thought, well, I'm on board with that. I could. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's almost like you can't. I agreed with her. <laughs> yeah, you can't solve problems if you can't talk about the problem. If you don't bring the problem into the light, there's no, you know, not as many people working on trying to make them better. You know, if they're if they're left in the dark, and you can just ignore them and forget about them. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there was there was a line in not in a poem that I read um, tonight, but in the book, roughly page fifty six or seven in the poem extension, um, <clears throat> when the professor is saying like these things happen, and then the narrator say, saying to whom? Not anyone I know. I wanted to say so at the time, this wasn't something that was discussed as much, mm-hmm. and then. Do people feel more alone or like they like no one's going to understand where they're coming? So, yeah. Um, well, like there's power in, in speaking, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, let's finish out with um, another poem. You had a poem from the new manuscript. Um, which did you want to read? Do you want to do the um, Is This Your Cow or the Wonder Woman? I don't know. I think maybe I'm in an, in an Is This Your Cow mood. Okay. Uh, Unless you really want to hear me rap, but I, I kind of do. Maybe we should do both. <laughs> we can do both. If, okay, if let's let's do both. Yeah, if you're up for it, let's do All both. All right, so I'll do is this your cow, and then I'll I'll look up the Wonder Woman rap online because I don't know if I pasted it on my screen. But I was like, All right, so this poem is this your cow? It, it's after 100 days learning German on Duolingo.com. <clears throat> is this your cow? Your cow is pretty. I like your shoes. Do you like me? I bring strawberries and wine. The garden is not beautiful. I eat the potato because I like potatoes. This vegetarian does not like me. Questions are great. Is it my turn? How many children do you have? How much wine do they drink? Are these your pants? Either yes or no. When is a man a man? Your oranges are big. Why is it so small? Is that a button? A bee! The man is not sad. He is never sad. He drinks a lot of beer. The man has a spider. No woman likes him. I like him since he is paying for food. I do not wear any clothes. I am not wearing anything. I am normal. I have many fans. I am drinking and you are paying. The beer is weak. The bear is strong. You don't know the bear. I know him through a friend. The bear is wearing her dresses. 
The shoes do not fit. A bee! We are not men. All women. The girls are not sad. My tool, please. The women like the tools. That is not a toy. I do not know these people. Are these your fans? You are babies. We are playing without you. A bee! You are not funny. Nobody likes that. The cat is funny. He runs as soon as he sees you. You are weak. You are heavy. You are slow. Learn nothing. This bed is cold. The house has no roof. No, it is not easy. That is not a garden. Nobody plays. No one speaks. No one is good. And if he hears you, the enemy is weak. We do not see the enemy. We are running even though we are tired. We see the trees. We see the sun. As long as we are fast, we run. I am alive. I know that. Without you, I am nothing. It is a garden without flowers. The wind is cold. We have no bread. The sky is falling. A wonderful poem. That is, uh, is this your cow from uh, Sonora Review? SonoraReview.com. S-O-N-O-R-A-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. SonoraReview.com. Is this your cow? Um, always like to give credit to where we're showing the poem from, but um, but yeah, that's such an adventurous poem, going surprising <laughs> places. Thanks for sharing that one, and let's finish up on the rap. If you don't really don't mind, I would love to hear a rap. I I don't I don't mind this. I the first version of this I wrote many 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 years ago, and I would do it uh, in the classroom, and we just had a we just had a good time. And eventually, I revised it, sent it to Light, and Melissa Balmain and the Light Brigade there were kind enough to publish it. So um, I think it was born of the fact that growing up, I loved Wonder Woman. And also I was, I, I loved um, the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. We had that album in my house and we just like play it incessantly while we played our Barbie dolls. And so I thought one day, like, what would, what would Wonder Woman sound like as a rap star? And so this is what I imagined she would sound like. <clears throat> Diana Prince, that's who I am. Born in 41 after the war began. Like Rosie in her ribbon and for Uncle Sam. I'm a woman just as super as any man. I come from Paradise Island, only women together. But mighty Aphrodite, I couldn't stay forever. I hitched a ride with Major Steve Trevor and went undercover on a secret endeavor. I can bend steel bars, but my strength is equal. And spitting rhymes that slay, I'm that lethal. No heavy gold chains, yet I'm regal fighting evil. I rock a red bustier with blinged out eagle. If villains shoot me, I'll deflect it. If they lie, my lasso will reject it. If a wrong comes along, I will correct it. I'm a tough cookie and you better respect it. When a crook or a hater unleashes drama, I send him crying. To his mama ain't gonna let the bad guys harm ya. I believe in peace, but I ain't no Dalai Lama. Peace and justice, that's my credo. And navy blue, I'm incognito. All the brutes in cahoots, I gotta bleed. Oh, I'm an Amazon princess in a star spangled speedo. That was really fun. So glad you did that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nicole. Oh, you're um, welcome. Yeah, it's just so fun to have fun with poetry, and uh, you definitely do. 
um, in addition to, you know, very serious topics as well. Um, but thanks so much for sharing that, for being a guest. It was a lot of fun. Uh, great poetry, as I knew it would be. Um, thanks for being here, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. I had a really great time. And uh, thank you for all your, your great questions. Awesome. Thanks so much. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Hope you have a good one. And uh, see you later. Have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, you too. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Thanks. That was on Nicole Caruso-Garcia. Um, her book from Able Muse Press is Oxblood, right here. Um, and you can find all of Nicole's work at her website, which is, of course, NicoleCarusoGarcia.com. So if you see it on the screen there, it's N-I-C-O-L-E, Caruso, C-A-R-U-S-O, Garcia.com. That is uh, her website where you can find this book and a lot more of her work, links to other stuff, including maybe more raps. I'm not sure. But very fun. Um, thanks to Nicole for being here. Now, um, <coughs> sorry. We're going to take a quick break, and I am going to uh, do the open lines. And so how the open lines work is right here. Email your poem right now to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com. That way I can show it on the screen like we were sharing Nicole's poems um, earlier. You can send any poems that you'd like. Um, you can send uh, po- um, Poets Respond poems about the news this week. You can send poems about... Um, um, that were published recently and you're proud of, send a link to an online publication. We'd love to share them like we did with Light Quarterly and um, the Sonora Review just now. Um, or you can send prompt poems. And the prompt for this week came from uh, last week's guest, um, uh, David James. And he had his prompt starting with a line from a James Tate poem. So if you got that poem, send it to... So email your poem first so I can show it at open mic, that's open M-I-C at rattle.com, and then find the links, which I'm going to post right now on the feed, on Facebook, and on YouTube. Uh, I will pin them to the top so you'll be able to find them right away. Those are the Zoom links. Join us on Zoom. If you don't want to share a poem, though, just sit tight right where you are, and uh, you'll get to listen to them, enjoy them, and see them, too, by watching on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. So you don't need to go to Zoom. Only go to Zoom if you want to share a poem. But here we go with the Zoom. I will be right back in just a moment with that. All right. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, like I mentioned, the prompt for this week um, was, I'll read the whole thing right now. The prompt for this week, um, again, came from David James. And it was to, yeah, there we go. It was to start with the first line of a James Tate poem and write a poem or prose poem that incorporates dialogue within the narrative. See where your imagination takes you. That was the prompt for this week. Um, and then he gave some suggestions, too, which um, if, you, if you watched the, the interview with David James last week and, and the poetry reading, you can tell he, he loves this kind of uh, James Tate style where you go off in this surreal direction and let whatever happens happen. And he, he proposed five uh, suggestions. We did that tunnel with spoons, which is the one I did. Um, being first, a huge lizard was discovered drinking, and, and so on. And so that was the prompt for this week. If anybody has those poems, here is mine, which I took the first one. And this is a 15-minute poem that happened right before the show, but that's always fun. This is, we dug that tunnel with spoons, after James Tate's. We dug that tunnel with spoons the size of shovels. They looked like silver oars in the lamplight, which made the dirt a chocolate ice cream, almost melting. This is so sweet, you said, behind me, pretending to... We rode that way through the darkest soil, through the worms and the roots and the tiny gems and the jetsam. All night the coxswain far ahead shouting, stroke, stroke, with such confidence we were sure we would soon catch him. 
That is, we dug that tunnel of spoons after James Tate. That it was my prompt poem for this week. Let's see what everybody else has. We have um, seven people lined up so far. If you have two poems that aren't too long, feel free. I think we're going to have time to share two if you'd like. Um, or feel free to just share one, of course. And uh, first up, let's go to um, Jennifer Elise Wang. My video. Hey. <laughs> hey, Jen. How you doing today? I'm good. I kind of did a, a last minute poem too, since, um, yeah, I wasn't familiar with uh, the author that all the prompts came from. So, oh, yeah. It was really interesting. That's interesting. Is it weren't t- familiar with uh, David James or James Tate? Kind of confusing their uh, names. James or- Tate. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. James Tate's great. He he just has these uh, surreal, almost almost prose poem kind of things that he yeah. does. Yeah. And um, there, there's some that are just. There's one that stands out about a goat going through the town. I don't know. Anyway, I think it's called My Goat. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, yeah. So and he sort of developed that style over the years, which is fun to watch too. Him him evolve as a poet, going more and more in that direction, which you could tell that was the direction his heart always wanted to go. And finally, at the end, he just went all the way. Um, but anyway, what do you have for us here? Um, yeah, so I went with kind of a, a more typical story, but just uh, the, I, it was Gabriella was lying on her back naked, which just kind of um, turned into the poem that I call Girl Crush. Excellent. Okay, here we go. I'll put it up on screen. Go ahead whenever you're ready. All right. Gabriella was lying on her back naked while I had my towel wrapped around me, hiding my body along with emotions I didn't understand. I could feel myself sinking lower into the chair with every furtive glance her way. If my eyes were cameras, there would be feminist essays written about how they panned up the curves of her calves, over her pillowy thighs, around those curves that made an hourglass. How perfectly poised her nipples were on not too small and not too big breasts I longed to touch and maybe to have. I couldn't help but wonder if the skin on her neck tasted sweet like a dessert, even though women shouldn't be compared to food especially one who was my friend since freshman year. When I finally dared to peek at her face, her eyelids parted and her lips curved into a knowing smile. You can touch it if you want, she said. I can be your first girl kiss. Although her gaze had frozen me in place, the confession flew out of my mouth. I've never been kissed. A rapid slideshow of emotions passed through her green eyes before she closed them and let out a soft sigh. I don't want that responsibility. It should be someone you love, not a friend. I'm sorry. I was too. Not for my inexperience, but for my hesitance. Oh, excellent. Great storytelling there. Thanks for sharing that story, Jennifer. It was a girl crush by Jennifer Elise Wang. Always a pleasure, Jen. All right. Thank you. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, girl crush by Jennifer Elise Wang. And uh, next up, let's go to uh, Mark Grinier. Hello, Tim. Hey, Mark. Great to see you today. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I got a couple of short poems here if you want to see them. This uh, one is kind of silly. It's called a Can of Coke. Yeah, go ahead. I'll put it up. Go ahead. <laughs> Dry as the Southwest desert now, cold in my hand. Poured over ice, I drink it down. Enjoy sweet bubbles shivering down my throat. That was great. A Can of Coke by Mark Grinier. And I can definitely, in my throat is just... <clears throat> if you can hear, I, I don't know if everybody can hear, but two weeks it's been going on, and uh, yeah. a nice cold, uh, cold Coke would be nice right now. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Mark. And what, what's the other one you got? The other one is called Spring and All. It's uh, I, since I I don't have any tape poems to work on, this is a takeoff that I I, I uh, did on uh, a very favorite 
very famous uh, William Carlos Williams poem. Excellent. Let's see it. Go ahead. Uh, it's, it's a golden shovel. So each line ends with the words from the poem. I wouldn't think today to write so much if I didn't believe well-being depends on our presence in this spring day upon which I contemplate the bees buzz, a red geranium nodding toward the black wheel of a barbecue grill or wooden wheelbarrow, sitting in the green lawn, a picture glazed with the sheen of sun or dampened by rain, falling as March snows melt back into cold water running down streets to muddy creeks beside the old road where traffic stopped while the white ducks rattled waddled across to feed in a yard with chickens. Excellent. Yeah, of course, a golden shovel with uh, the after the William Carlos Williams poem. So the last lines there were, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed ra- by rain uh, in the, um, beside the white chickens. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Thanks so much. Rainwater. That's the sorry about that. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's uh, from the William Carlos Williams poem. Excellent golden shovel. Thanks for sharing that, Mark. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, let's go to Sharon Ferrante next. <clears throat> I unmuted. Did I? You did. Hello, Sharon. How are you doing tonight? Okay. Thank you so much for the interview with Nicole. Thank her. It was great. Yeah, and Nicole's uh, one I've been looking forward to for, for a long time, because I really did think Oxblood was, like, already out when, uh, when, I, when I saw her bio way back then. So it was cool to finally, di- finally get it. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it very much. Um, I did a prompt poem. I, I actually read Shadow Man by James Tate mm-hmm. and decided to use his first line for my title. And I... I wrote a hyphen. Excellent. And I'm not good. I'm not good at it. Okay. Um, I've only written one other because I'm not good at prose. And so I probably didn't write it correctly, but it wanted to be like this and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so I'll share. You can definitely, you don't have to have, uh, you know, a hyphen works that way. You can have line breaks. You can do whatever you want in a hyphen. No one can stop you, Sharon. <laughs> well, it came out so much fun. I, I said, I don't care if I wrote it right. It's good. Because, you know, I'm not a prose writer. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. So let's just, I'll share it. In the backyard, I saw the shadow of a man, James Tate. In the corners of night, there's always a needed investigation. Some alien trespassing on my tomatoes or the neighbor that steals them. I watch with my night-filled eyes, here with the mechanical neck of an owl. But the shadow is repetitive as the words I love you disappear. I've seen waves do it, whispering, shh, as they crash alone. That neighbor does it all the time. I yell to him, I love you. He yells back, what? An alien bug, my tomato, his planet. I gift the neighbor. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nicole. Let me, uh, I will log back in. For watching at home, I, uh, it lets you, it's funny because it lets you stay logged into a Gmail for exactly one week to the minute. And so, 
Uh, it logged me out in the middle of that poem. But here's the here's the end. Of this. Just so you can see uh, you can see the end too. An alien bug, my tomato, his planet. I gift the neighbor. Excellent uh, haiku at the end. That was really fun. I love that, Sharon. Hey, great, great hyphen. It was a fun prompt. Thank you so much. Great night. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thanks as always. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Sharon. Thank you. That was Sharon Ferrante with uh, In the Backyard I Saw the Shadow of Man, one of the great James Tate poems. And mm-hmm. Going through uh, going through them, uh, looking at it to see which one I wanted to write about or, or inspired by. It was really fun. I love James Tate, actually. I kind of forgot how much I liked him. Um, let's go next to uh, Carla Schwartz. Hi. Hello. Hey, Carla. You sound great glad- tonight. I th- the audio is uh- really good. Oh, thank you. I'm glad that's the case. And um, I'm glad to be here. And what a great night of poems. And uh, so I'm going to start. I I sent in two poems. And Mm -hmm. the first one is um, one that just got published recently in, um, I don't know if you can see this, in a little anthology called Smoky Quartz 10th Anniversary Anthology. And it comes out of New Hampshire. It's sort of for New Hampshire-based poets. And uh, the poem that I'm going to read is called Deliverance. And um, here it is. After two long days, packing, sorting, jettisoning, to to change things up, I think about going to Savers. Before I threw away the cassettes, I listened to a tape of answering machine messages. My mother saying she loved me before she was sick. A man whom I don't even remember telling me I meant the stars. I listened at night while I boxed books for donation, parsing the words of X after X after decades long silence. Now it's almost 5.30 and Savers closes soon. I breathe in ribbons of dust as I drive. My car packed with things I've lived years with. I park in with the others, truckloads of lamps, clothes, toys. Arriving at Savers just in time, feeling somehow delivered. Yeah, excellent poem. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing uh, that. It was Deliverance by Carla Schwartz. And, and then, um, uh, yeah, you have another one for us too, right? Yeah, this was my attempt at a, at a, um, at the prompt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't even remember the taint poem that I modified the first lines of. And when I looked up his poems, like a lot of times the first line would just be like what might have been part of a first line, you mm-hmm. know, somewhere because of the way he broke them up. But anyway, so I, I believe it started with We Traveled Down to See You. Or something like that. So um, this is called um, Flight. We traveled down to see you fly. With the whole crew, we were 22. Some in trucks, all electric. Some in cars, all electric. And three aircraft, a Cessna, a helicopter, and the electric plane you flew. At each landing, a hawk or vulture would circle the runway, riding the thermals or flapping to stay airborne. Six legs of flight, 170 miles all told. Every possible weather mishap that could occur did. 
Driving rain wins more rain. Starting at 4 a.m., we felt propelled by the wind, like you must have been. Had you thought out the consequences if this feat had failed? A hint of sun under thick blanket of clouds as we sweep toward lake five, leg five. The twisted roads slowed us down. We see you land just as we approach the field. The field. A bumpy landing, but you are not Icarus yet. An electric truck sweeps in to begin the recharge. We are running on empty, almost. One leg left, and it's cold and dark. We had signed up for hurry up and wait for 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. I hooked up an induction to one of the trucks popcorn on the runway. It's that kind of day, a day longer than a day. The hotel room door, when we finally arrive, propped unlocked by a deadbolt. Afraid to enter, I thought maybe a secret rendezvous was to take place between the maintenance and the room service, or a dog owner from the Black Lab convention taking place that weekend wanted to use the jacuzzi, or Someone was in the room waiting for me. But as we opened the door and stepped in, it was only my dead mother, grateful it wasn't us up in that plane for 19 hours, grateful it for each takeoff and land, fearful of the cold cockpit, the iced wings, fearful of the small light plane and hard tarmac or soft grass of a private airport or public. Oh, Carla, my mother leads me to the hot tub around the corner from the king bed. After midnight, in our exhaustion, collapsed into the filled tub, we bubble up. Hey, great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. Oh, thank yeah, you. That was a really cool journey, flight. Um, and definitely, uh, I, I do love the way that James Tate takes off and goes strange places, and, and you did a good job, too, of, of letting the, your imagination flow. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks so much, Tim. Yep. Take care. Yep. Yep. That's Carla Schwartz with two poems. Um, next up, we will go to Carolyn Codd. Hey, Carolyn, can you unmute? Yeah, there there you go. go. Hello. How are you doing today, Carolyn? Okay. Um, this this is a poem. It's a prompt poem, but it's from a couple of weeks ago uh-huh. about that had to do with home. And um, when I saw it, I thought I I've thought quite a bit about the idea of home since I moved back to the United States after living in Spain for 30 years. Mm. And I kind of thought, I don't really know where home is anymore. Oh, yeah, for sure. 30 um, years in Spain would do that, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm on the West Coast instead of where I was from on the East Coast. Mm. So, um, but anyways, um, when I, and when I started it, I kind of didn't know where I was going to end up with the poem. But anyways, I called it Home Base. Uh, The earth was flat, the sky a dome, like a big bowl upside down over the flat, round plate of earth. Houses with four or five people, perhaps a dog or cat, and their corresponding gardens covered most of the surface, all connected by driveways, streets, and roads. School was at the end of my street. One road led to a big lake with water seeming to go to the very edge of the plate. Some longer winding roads went to a small lake. 
set in pretty green hills. Canandaigua, my first big word. On the sky dome above, sun, clouds, rain, snow, the moon and stars, sometimes shooting stars, appeared, and birds flew in between. All quite neat and simple. The earth was flat, the sky a dome. That was my home. Then I began to grow up and fell off the plate. Discovery. I was living on a gigantic round ball with all sorts of people, animals and plants scattered around on farms, fields, forests, towns and cities. In between rivers, lakes, large and small, seas and oceans, all interspersed with plains, deserts, hills and mountains. By now I've visited many spots on this great ball and lived in various places. I have heard and learned new words in different languages. This world is not so neat, nor so simple. It's complicated, diverse, sometimes messy, sometimes frightening, ever-changing, at times exciting. The earth is not flat. The sky is not a dome. This gigantic round globe, this now is my home. Oh, excellent, Carolyn. Thanks so much for sharing that. You had me uh, nostalgic both for... um for simpler times and also uh, for the Finger Lakes, which I love. I, I would love to move back there to the Finger Lake region. Yeah, Such a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of where I grew up and uh, by Lake yeah. Canandaigua. Thanks yeah. so much for sharing that, Carolyn. Excellent, excellent stuff. Okay. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, Jennifer. happy Thanksgiving to you too, Carolyn. Okay. Thank you. It was Carolyn Codd with a Home Base. And, um, and then last but not least, let's go to Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing tonight? Good. It's so nice to see you 90, what, 98%. At least it looks like you're feeling good. Yeah, I'm feeling better. It's just like the lungs don't want to give it up yet or something. You know, they're just, I got a, I got a cough drop here, which I had in my mouth for a little bit, and then <laughs> and I couldn't yeah. talk with a cough drop. But, but definitely, uh, everything else feels great. It's just a matter of, like, whatever damage, I guess, it did getting out of my lungs or healing or something because i'm I, my cough is not going away uh well last last week let, here's a view from afar uh-huh. it's going away it's going away yeah well that's good to see good to know good to know yeah um, okay so uh, what do you got for us dick um i have a poet's respond poem uh, counting accounts and a uh, which i'll do first and then a prompt poem okay let me pull it up so what's the post respond poem about uh well um it is a lesser version of Dante's, which was <laughs> such a magnificent poem. I mean, it's sort of like when I saw that on Sunday, I went, oh. <laughs> Let me see. Oh, actually, you know, I think this poem was in, in the running. It was just I could only pick one. I remember it. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it was Dante's because, <laughs> you know, of, co- of course I want mine up there. But read uh, that poem is just magnificent. So. Yeah, very cool. Well, let's see, see your take on this, though, because it is a significant thing. I mean... It, it was uh, when we got to one billion. Remember when one that was like the seventies or something, wasn't it? it? Wasn't that long ago, or uh, maybe the. It 60s. wasn't one billion, I, I, but it was three, maybe or something. It yeah, was, I mean, it's just going so fast now. <clears throat> yeah. Ge- geometry or uh, ge- geometric progressions are um, relentless things. They they really are. Yeah. Um, so this one, just just a little poetry background. Uh, the line that came to me first was near the end, where it says they, um, it says the math isn't right, and I was just sort of thinking about like this whole notion of the abstraction of counting people, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I was thinking about that, I stumbled across this mouse. <laughs> so, so excuse me, uh, counting your counts. This mouse was in full rigor, stiff as a stick. I know because I nudged her with my toe. She glistened in her rain-wet robe, dead on the neighbor's drive. Who knows for how long? Alexa says there are 20 billion of her kind in the world, and I want to know. I want to know where are the scavengers, the possums and coons, the manged coyotes, thick with fleas, whose howls now darken these cold gray days. And what if, what if the carcass cleanup crews have quit? What if we humans went untended like this? When we died, we were left where we lay and became eternal monuments built of bones. They say, they say there are 8 billion of us, but the math isn't right. Who counts or does the counting count? Who numbers us? Who is human, is counted, is not counted by some who count until their bones pile up, get in the way. And that may be how we all finally count. Yeah, that was uh, Dequest Timer with Counting Who Counts. And just for the record, so this is the weird, the crazy stat. So at 1 billion, 1804, it took until 1804 to go to 1 billion. 1927, 2 billion, then another 33 years to 3 billion in 1960, and then 8 billion, you know, just uh, you know, uh, 60 years later. So we are well, accelerating, that's why, but, that's but why I remember 3 billion because <laughs> I was around that. Oh, yeah, there you go. But yeah, I mean, it? but hopefully, it, you know, it's kind of. It's kind of plateauing a little bit, maybe, in the next couple decades. <laughs> anyway, well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna live with uh, with Dante's poem for a while because that yeah. made it feel feel a little better. Yeah, so. that, that was a good one too, and it, it contains the whole thing too. It contains the bad as well as the good, but remembers the good, which is always fun. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, uh, what's the other poem you have for, after James Tate? Uh, so I did the James Tate prompt. I I. I um, I think I'm going to change the title to the first line, go mm-hmm. back to the way you did it. So, but for now, it'll have this, this title. And, and I sort of went with, uh, the line was, uh, hands full of sand, I say. And of course, that made the conversational part of the poem, the prompt, mm-hmm. feel a little easier. Yeah. And I tried to go with sort of that surreal, almost absurdist feel to it until the end. Um, a starry-eyed man and his patient wife. Hands full of sand, I say. It's all slipping away. She looks at me, eyes tipped up from her book. What? She asks. Sand? What are you talking about? Through my fingers, I say. The stars. I held them right here, clasping my palms to my chest. What I mean to say is I cannot stop obsessing about stars, their shape, how they pierce the dark drape of the sky. I lay out tonight and counted each one until I ran out of numbers, then gave each a name, listened to their stories, their melodies, each in a different key. And now that I'm inside, they play in my head like a thousand thousand symphonies, each heaped on the other Put them down, she says. Please, come to bed. 
open your hands and let the stars sift through like sand, except one. Hold on to that one, she said, pointing to me. Sing it slow so that we can be our own melody. No, a spiral galaxy with a nova at its core, one somebody light years away will know as the brightest in their entire sky. Yeah, great poem there. That was a, a starry-eyed man and his patient wife, although it might become hands full of sand. Um, and do you want to, you include the uh, James Tate. Do you want to read that too? Uh, sure. Um, James Tate. Um, the whole world's sadly talking to itself. W.B. Yeats. Hands full of sand, I say. Take this. This is what I have saved. I earned this with my genius because I love you. Take this, hurry. I am dropping everything. And then I listened. I was not saying anything out of all that had gone into the composition of language and what I knew of it. I had chiseled these words, take this, hurry, and you could not hear me. I had said nothing. And then I am leaving, making ready to go to another street when you mingled between sweet sleep and delirium turned and handed me an empty sack. Take this, friend. I am not coming back. The ghost of a flower poised on your lip. Yeah, very cool. Um, thanks for uh, sharing and reading that too, Dick. It's, it's really interesting to see the how radically different, you know, the human imagination takes a line. Because I'm sure James Tate started with that line. And he went that way, and you went that way, and uh, anybody else who wrote it would go a different way too, which is just amazing. It was, it was a great prompt, and it was a great exercise to try to make a poem mostly conversation, because mm-hmm. you know often conversation ruins a poem. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. Well, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. Always a pleasure, Dick. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye. Yep. Have a good night. It was Dick Westheimer with, uh, with two poems, a prompt poem and then a, a poet respond poem. I was going to wrap up the Zoom. I'll close that meeting. And um, we'll look at a few poems as well from other people who sent them in and um, couldn't stay up late enough. So here is, um, this is, uh, let me pause to just get a little, little, ah, clear my throat a little bit. And uh, this is uh, Clayton Clark's poem. And it's starting with a first line of a James Tate poem. So let's, uh, let's check this out by Clayton Clark. Here we go. And uh, starting with the first line of a James Tate poem, a huge lizard was discovered drinking again by his missus. Her eyes narrowed. He sat cross-legged, cigarette dangling from one nostril. That really bugged her. Gross, she hissed. A ball of smoke rolled from his Cuervo gold lips. You used to be fun, he chafed, then laugh coughed. When Woody Harrelson asked Jesse Eisenberg, you want to feel how hard I can punch in Zombieland on TV? The missus said, you want to? To her mister whose green head flushed red. He said, let a man have some peace, will you? She replied, peace of mind. He split second tongues snatched to fly from the air, then kindly offered to share. She laughed. Click. He paused the zombies. She climbed into his lap, sipped his liquor, said, can you believe it, us bickering like the humans? Expression unchanged. He turned and said, oops, I forgot to lock the terrarium. A tear fell, he said. 
I know that's my job. I just forget sometimes. She said, don't worry. As she removed her tail, it's not the end of the world. She lay the detached part of herself in front of them on the ottoman. Then, mesmerized, they watched the reflecting scales shimmer in the projected carnage. Very cool. A huge litter was discovered drinking the first line from that James Tate poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Clayton Clark. Very fun where, uh, see where your imagination takes it. Um, here is a poem by Carlton Johnson. And, um, and it's, um, again, this is a prompt poem from Carlton. Here we go. This is Carlton Johnson's poem. He says, um, he includes the prompt. It's The Basement by Carlton Johnson. So here we go. The Basement. I had been rooting around in the basement, behind the row of old 10-speed bikes piled like cordwood. I had found a mother load, dozens of old mad still reeking of my uncle's tobacco after an aftershave. It must have been 40 years since they'd been opened and laughed at. George? George, are you still in the basement? My grandma stood at the top of the stairs, hands still dusted with flour. Yes, grandma, I found something. But I think my enthusiasm was lost on her. Don't forget to wash up. It'll be time for supper soon. Yes, grandma. I checked my watch with a tight little afternoon sunlight creeping through the open basement hatchway. It was nearly four. I left my newfound treasure for another day. The scent of her fresh Swedish rye wafting propelled me towards the love of a grandmother. Ah, that's a very sweet poem. Thanks so much. It was Carlton Johnson with The Basement. And, um, yeah, very sweet. Thanks for sharing that, Carlton. And then here is a poem. Um, um, uh, here's one that got... <laughs> oh, no. So, Padre O'Donoghue says this one got banned from Facebook. I'm not sure. Um... <laughs> We'll see. <clears throat> I think it's okay to read. This is a Suicide by Carlton Johnson. I don't think it'll get us banned from YouTube, so don't worry. This is a Suicide by Carl or by um, Potter Donahue, I should say. Here's Suicide by Potter Donahue. Uh, suicide. Ideation, appropriation, veneration. If you were going to then get on with it before it's too late, Sylvia thinks she does it well. Ian on his knees, the perfect note pressed and played a million times in thousands of homes, and me at the back of the class, egging on, but not quite brave enough to join in. All these doctor's words, all these between the lines, all this cognitive behavior therapy, all these tablets, and only one unmentioned elephant in the room, swaying its trunk. Very powerful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, Potter O'Donohue with Suicide. Um, and let's see. So I think... Um, oh, here's Ted Covera with a James Tate poem, too. He says, there's probably more James Tate words in this poem than my own. Um, I had planned to make a video of it, but I couldn't find the relaxed state of mind. So here is... Um, um, I think this is the James Tate poem first. Um, Constellations After an Affair. Actually, maybe we'll do, we'll do, uh, I'll do, I'll do Ted Guerrero's poem first, then we'll read the James Tate poem too, because why not? They're both short. So here's a retirement plan by uh, Ted Bernal Guevara. Retirement plan. My seed for life plants itself again, this time among roses. They are with thorns, but gentle, whispering to one another. 
Very beautiful, touching poem there. Very simple and uh, and moving, um, Ted. And then this was the poem, I believe. Yeah, this is the poem, uh, the James Tate poem, that this was inspired by or spun off from. So here we go. Let's read this too. Consolations after an affair. My plants are whispering to one another. They are planning a little party later on in the week about watering time. I have quilts on beds and walls that think it is still the 19th century. They know nothing of automobiles and jet planes. For them, a wheat field in January is their mother and enough. I've discovered that I don't need a retirement plan, a plan to succeed. A snow leopard sleeps beside me like a slow, warm breeze. And I can hear the inner birds singing alone in this house I love. That's Consolations After an Affair by James Tate. So thanks for sharing the poem, too. It's always fun. I, I do love James Tate. He's one of my favorite poets, actually, and I kind of forgot. I mean, I always like him. I know I like him, but read more of his poems. I forget how much I like him. Okay, and now I think we're going to do... Um, <clears throat> so we have some sad news to relate. I think a lot of people already know... Um, um, let me pull up the poem really quickly, though. Um, Courtney Campa passed away. She was the guest on Rattlecast uh, number 51, um, and just so young and so full of joy, such a light, and, and probably the youngest poet we've ever had on the on the Rattlecast, I think. I think she was probably 32 at the time, um, but she died this week, and um, and she's she's one of the... We actually have a Courtney Campa rule um, at Rattle, which is that um, if you enter the Rattle Poetry Prize... Now I check to make sure that the one poet doesn't have two poems in the finalist um, category. And if it do, we just publish the second poem, but we don't make it a finalist. Because then you're like competing against yourself, which Courtney Camp is the only person to ever have two poems finalist the same year. Um, and she did that when she was 22. Um, and then finally, she became a uh, Rattle Poetry Prize Reader's Choice Award winner um, for this poem. It's about grace. And uh, this was uh, from Rattle number from round number 46, winter 2014. Um, so I thought we'd play this poem to just remember Courtney Campa. Um, and really, it's such tragic news that she's gone. Um, I encourage everybody, if you haven't yet, to go back and watch that episode. Just a great poet, a wonderful, wonderful poet, um, and such a tragic loss. But here's Courtney Campa uh, reading poems about grace. Poems About Grace The video is soft and grainy as an ultrasound. Eleven seconds of a caretaker holding a baby girl up by the armpits like a potted plant. When the woman bounced her in the air, the infant shivered the way petals do when wind grasps a stem too thin, too breakable to hold. We stood a foot from the screen for hours, rewind and play, Rewind and play. Inside us, something raised and gathered like a scar. We were an ache, a gash sealed for someone other than ourselves. My husband boiled pots and pots of tea. We wouldn't sleep, that baby out there burning, remote and lonely as a star. At the orphanage, she learned early not to cry. No one came. Twelve children per nurse. She lay with sleeves safety-pinned to the mattress. By mid-afternoon, her window darkened like a clot. Blackness welled up and pooling, pushing even the clouds from their sky. Maybe in the stillness, she heard a starling. 
Maybe she wanted to sing, too. Got as far as opening her mouth, but didn't know any songs. To adopt, you visit first. This is labor. It is unpinning your baby's arms from her crib of toothpicks and lead paint. It is her squirm when caressed, caught between an instant of panic and her lifelong yearn. It is the cautious curl against a mother's chest, how her brown lips part like an upturned beak as you darn the holes in her clothes, the punctures made when fettered to her sheets. It is your impulse to encircle her like a womb, to feel her breathing kick in her sleep, to hear her heart faintly against yours, that pregnant syncopation you thought you'd never know. Touch had turned her hungry. All night she wailed, her mouth the O of an open drain. The next day a nurse yelled, You've ruined her, held her too much. The vein running up her neck stood out like a blue cable. She had taught this child what was good to know, that life would be low-pitched and solo. To be born means the same as to barrel, the way a train does from its station the way this child had from the body of the mother who first cut her brakes. Her toes, like tiny golden hooks, pulled me up from the world. Mornings, she put the undersides of her feet together as though in prayer. I learned a new way to talk to God, her little feet in my mouth, in each sentence I spoke. Once, seeing her socks on the staircase, the shape of two white eggs, I burst grateful into tears. Did I come from your tummy? No, but Grace, you came from my heart. She hears this and stretches wide like the confident roots of a flower, an outward earthen stir. See how the veined palms draw gently toward the roots in mine. Our dangling threads crocheted into a trellis, like lace, a helix we've doubled and twisted by hand. And that was Courtney Campa with poems about grace. Um, and you can see there her uh, rattlecast number 51, where she was the guest. Maybe we should look at a, do, let's do another poem. We have time. Let's do a second poem by Courtney. This is um, in Charlottesville after Charlottesville, another Rattle Poetry Prize finalist. I think the year before, maybe two years before. Um, here's in Charlottesville after Charlottesville, of course, almost a poet's respond poem um, to um, the events of Charlottesville back then. Here we go with a second poem by Courtney Kempa. Um, here's Courtney. In Charlottesville after Charlottesville. Tonight they've hung up lights and lilts across Second and Water Street on the downtown mall. A Christmas choir singing O Holy Night. Twenty-four people lined against the painted brick wall, its peeling curls. The wall will knelt beside on one knee, face full of fear. A sidewalk of gum and toppled ice cream to ask if I could always call him mine. The same wall we crouched against in August, shielding our heads with our arms, our bags, our books, whatever brought along that might protect us from the rocks and spit they threw. 
their emptied tear gas canisters hurled by arms roaring with blood, their faces doing that angry Goya thing with the colors. My mother called hours after Heather breathed last, called to make sure our front door was locked, that I remembered tomorrow was a holy day of obligation, and if I didn't go to church, it would be a mortal sin. Her own version of danger. That time in August, flowers weren't blooming, but there was one frail rose on our rented front yard, and we could see it from the upstairs window. The rose, but also the gunmetal gray Dodge, plate GVF 1111, three houses down, abandoned and blood caked from taking Heather's life and mowing over others. Full throttle forward, then rubbed into reverse. The steel front bumper severed, like two arms bent, palms up and sorry. A car to take a person places, not to take someone away. And at the window, Will became more beautiful to me. His fingers on the glass, all of them his. Now, sort of mine too. The driver ran into the woods to crouch and hide out like a squirrel. We walked our dog through those woods that morning, green and lush as if beauty's sole defense is to always just be beautiful. On that Feast of the Assumption, Charlottesville opened their eyes as if a body punctured. Tiki torches on fire. Adult children playing with their father's guns. There is a sound a body makes when bounced off the hood of a car that no one should hear. Tonight, snow falls peacefully, and the choir sings, Fall on your knees. And because we have nothing else to give, we do. And that was Courtney Campa with another uh, Rattle Poetry Prize finalist poem. That was um, in Charlottesville after Charlottesville from Rattle number 62, um, you know, just, just such a great loss to, to lose Kent, Courtney and, um, all of the poems and books that she had in her still, um, only had one book. Um, and what was the title of the book? It was, um, Our Lady of, um, Our Lady of Not Asking Why. So check out Courtney Campbell's book, if you would, Our Lady of Not Asking Why, or check out Rattlecast number 51. Um, and that is going to be the show for today, except for the Saiku. Let's pull up the Saiku. And um, the Saiku is this story this week, uh, which I have found really interesting. So if you remember, everybody does, I'm sure, that colony collapse disorder um, where the bees are dying. Um, There are books about colony collapse disorder. I I probably read a thousand poems about colony collapse disorder. Um, And there's a book with that title too. I can't remember who the author is. A book of poems, I mean. Um, But it always struck me as a little odd because um, if you look at the studies about colony collapse, it's all these um, commercial bees um, that are used to farm. And I always wondered if maybe um, there was something else going on besides for just the um, the environmental issues, like maybe some kind of um, um, just the way they're being used, because they're trucked all over the country in the back of, um, you know, 18 wheelers um, to, to fertilize fields. And those were the, the bees, if you looked into it, they were all dying. And here's a really interesting story. This is, um, out of the college of agriculture and natural sciences or natural resources at the university of Maryland. And, uh, you're not gonna be able to fit it all on the screen. I don't think, but, um, maybe if I shrink it enough, 
will fit. Um, honeybee lifespans are 50% shorter today than they were 50 years ago. A drop in longevity for lab-kept honeybees could help explain colony losses and lower honey production in recent decades. And what they did is they followed the exact same protocol for growing honeybees that they've been using since the 1970s and, um, and found that the honeybees are living half as long, um, even when they're, it's um, 17.7 days rather than 34.3 days like it was in the 1970s. And, and what they found is that even raised completely isolated from any kind of environmental factors, um, bees are living half as long. Um, which is just fascinating. So it seems like there's probably some kind of genetic component, probably in the way that bees are being raised and farmed and used as stock. I mean, it's like the bee stocks are declining is what we talk about. And um, and it reminded me of this really interesting thing too with uh, lab rats and how I think we talked about it once because we had telomeres came up or telomeres came up on one of the uh, rattlecasts. But um, there's this really fascinating thing where since lab rats are kept... Um, and bred in a way for for research and for especially medical research, pharmaceutical research. Um, they're culled when they get too old, and so so rats. So over the years, um, their telomeres, which are like the stop function on a on your DNA, end up getting longer and longer. So the cells are allowed to replicate more and more and more, which makes lab rats much more robust than they are naturally um, in the wild, um, and much more resistant to toxicity. Um, and though much more prone to cancer. So you have all those like cell phone studies that show rats getting cancer. Turns out it's because these rats are super prone to cancer by being bred in the lab. And this story reminded me a lot of that, which is a fascinating, fascinating issue. And so maybe there's something going on with the way honeybees are being bred that are causing colony collapse disorder after all, and it's making genetic changes to their telomeres. Anyway, that's a long explanation, but it's a very interesting story. So um, here is the Saiku for this week. All that buzz about the honeybees collapsing. All that buzz about the honeybees collapsing. That is your Saiku for the week, and that is the show for the week. Um, next week's prompt is going to be a very simple one, um, but it'll be fun to see who your favorite poets are, because the prompt for next week is to write a poem inspired by your favorite poet. So figure out who your favorite poet is, tell me who it is, and then write a poem inspired by them somehow. That is the prompt for next week. Um... And next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be um, Rick Lupert. Um, his newest book is God Wrestler. Rick is just such an really incredible person. He's the host of the Poetry Superhighway, which I aspire to the Rattlecast uh, to be as good of a host as he is. He's such a great host of that. He does does so much with the open lines there. He was a great host at the Cobalt Reading Series at the Cobalt Cafe in L.A. for so long. I always thought it was the best reading series of poetry in L.A. He also does something really interesting where he writes uh, books every time he goes on vacation. He writes a new book. Um, and so he has a ton of books. I think we'll read more than just this. But his latest book is um, God Wrestler, a poem for every tour portion. Um, but Rick Lupert is just a great ambassador for poetry. He's a really, really funny guy. He writes, he's in our humor issue of Rattle 2, has a lot of really funny poems. His rules for poetry um, is, that, actually, let me, I was going to do that. Let's do, um, uh, yeah, we have five minutes. Let's do, uh, let's do Rick Lupert's poem, Rules for Poetry, which um, everybody does love, if I can pull it up fast enough. Rules for Poetry. Never use adjectives unless you're trying to describe something and you don't want to do it the hard way. 
Never use the word forever. It reminds people they're going to die. And the last thing you need is people distracted by their mortality during your poem. Write what you know, unless you're a fool, in which case, look to the internet and write about something there. Avoid vowels and their angry sister, the letter Y. Avoid cliché. On the other hand, learn the difference between epigraphs, epigrams, and episiotomies. Use as few words as possible. In fact, hand out blank sheets of paper and tell them it's your finest work. If you ever use the phrase, darkness in my soul, be prepared for me to come to your house and kill you. If you're going to write in form, do it right. For example, as I understand it, a haiku is 800 words written while sitting on a cheesecake. Line breaks are important but use them carefully. Once you've broken a line, its mother will never forgive you. Finally, go to poetry workshops. Sometimes they serve food, and you can't write poetry if you're dead because you forgot to eat. That is Rick Lupert's uh, poem, uh, rules for poetry and that is he's gonna be next week's guest should be a really fun episode um a great host great poet great guest uh rick lupert broadcast number 170 and the prompt to write a poem uh, written after inspired by your favorite poet that's gonna be rattlecast number 170 next week monday november 28th the regular time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific hope to see you then hope you have a great week in the meantime and i will talk to you later good night